Amen. Thank you, choir, as you make your way down. The choir is working on a very special uh, Sunday morning production, I guess you might say. Actually, all of our collaborative uh, choirs are going to be blessing us in about two weeks, I think, two weeks from today. So, and if you want to be a part of our choir ministry, then I would encourage you to just come on Wednesday night. There's uh, only one upstairs in this whole building. There's two stairwells that come off this hallway in the back. Just go up there at 630 and be a part. They have a great time together. Everybody's welcome. You don't have to be a super great singer. You just have to make a joyful noise. Amen? I'm the only one they've ever banished from up there. Well, it hurt my feelings a little bit, but I'm over it now. Romans chapter 8, page 1301 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Romans chapter 8, considered to be by many the uh, one of the absolute most fantastic and beautiful chapters in the New Testament or all the Bible. Um, if there were, if you came to me and said, Pastor, I want to memorize a passage of Scripture or a chapter of Scripture. Uh, where, what would you recommend? I would say Romans chapter 8 would be a great uh, place to begin memorizing Scripture. Today we're going to talk a little bit about House of Mirrors. Now, does, does that creep you out a little bit? Those, uh, uh, some of you are having some clown flashbacks or something right now. Uh, but it's meant, to, it's meant to creep you out a little bit because... A house of mirrors, uh, that's the attraction at the carnival that you go in that's filled with all these uh, mirrors that are uh, not as they should be. And what they do is when you look in them, they distort everything that you see when you look into the mirror. So they make you look all, you know, you know, really short and really wide or really long and really narrow or all bent up or twisted around or so on and so forth. And uh, really, there's no need for the house of mirrors anymore because now all the kids have apps on the phone that makes you look like every kind of weird contortion thing under the sun. But really, the, the thing about a house of mirrors is this. It's presented to look like fun. It's presented to, uh, to lure you in for the fun of the experience, but really what it's going to do is distort everything you see. Now, a lot of times in the Christian life, what happens to us is we sort of get going and either initially or through the course of time or maybe well into our journey with Christ, we begin to sort of uh, lose traction, if you will. And now, what I'm talking about, uh, maybe some of these things would resonate with you. For example, if maybe this morning, the words that you might use to describe uh, yourself or your life at this particular moment in time might be something like, very low. You come into church... You try to put a smile on your face. You dress up in your Sunday best. Um, but really, uh, as you're looking around you, everything you see is distorted. You oftentimes would tend to see everyone around you as being more than uh, what they actually are. And then anytime you see a reflection of yourself, it would be distorted in a negative way. So you 
would just uh, continually push yourself down. Now, this can happen to us for a variety of reasons. Sometimes uh, this sort of barrenness in our spiritual walk or this bleakness, uh, it's, it comes because of a life of compromise. Because we have started um, making decisions or not making decisions. And we are uh, overlooking things that we know are important. And over time, they begin to build up in our life until we get to a place where we just say, this really isn't the way to live. Yeah, I don't want to live this way. You know, and you ask yourself a question like, how, how did I get here? And if you look back, you see that it wasn't, a, it wasn't an instantaneous arrival, but it was a gradual sort of descent. And along the path, because you, you, you're, you constantly beat yourself up, you don't want to be where you are, you want to you be the person God wants you to be, but you continually find yourself falling short. You say, now how did I get here? Well... The path was laden with all of these promises, if you will, or with all of these, uh, you know, enticements. And, and maybe initially along the way there was some enjoyment in the compromises that you were making. But when you get to the end and you look back, there's nothing but pain and suffering. But it was just enough sort of... Uh, Enjoyment to just keep luring you another step down the path and another step down the path. You say things to yourself like, I should know better. I should know better than to make these decisions. I should know better than to overlook these things. And so it's like living in a house of mirrors because really nothing brings a lower point in our lives than self-generated failure. We know that we're hurting. We know that we're discouraged. And we know that it's our own fault. What we don't know is what to do about it. I'm talking about being discouraged and being in church I'm talking about being low and being in church. I'm talking about you. You're here this morning. And me. I'm talking about being able to sit and listen and hear a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or whatever the case may be. But you find yourself, your life is just filled with this sequence of trafficking through unlived truth. The truth is there. You're hearing it with your physical ears, but somehow it's not transitioning into actual life on the ground. And so what happens is eventually you get to the end of your rope, you get discouraged, you realize it's a miserable way to live. And maybe you ask yourself this question, did God create me to live this way? 
Is this his plan for me? And the answer to that obviously is no. But more importantly, the only way we could get there, if that's not God's plan or purpose for his children, then the only way you and me can get there is somebody else has to be making all the decisions or calling all the shots in our life. It's not the Lord. Because if we're where God never intended for us to be, somebody other than Him is in control. And so we consider things like the reality in 2 Peter 1.3 where the Bible says His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. You see, you read that verse and you think to yourself, God has given me everything that I need to be mature in Him. Yet, I am perpetually discouraged. I am perpetually defeated. I want to help you this morning break those chains of discouragement and defeat. What we need to do this morning is we need to hear a very simple truth that will come at your heart from a bunch of different directions to try to cause us all to humble ourselves before this simple reality that God wants us to know. Now, the answer to our problem is truth. That's true, but not just any truth. Not just any truth. You see... The Bible gives us a progression of truth. Do you know that? You see, the Bible, that book that you're holding in your hands, that we're about to read from Romans chapter 8, I want you to understand that it's not just a random collection of true statements. It's not just a, a, a book filled with, with these little quips from God that are true. But they're organized and they're put together and they're given to you and communicated by God to us in a very specific progression. And if you don't know that, and if you don't respond to that rightly, then you're going to be in trouble. Let, let me explain this to you. Let's suppose that you go to the store and you buy some new thing. It really doesn't matter what it is. You take it home you open the box, you get all the pieces out, you get the instructions out, and now you're set and ready to put it together. Now, the person who created the thing put the directions together. All the directions are true. Would you agree? Yes. But what happens if you start assembling this thing based on all the true instructions, but you do it in a random order. You're not going to end up with what you're supposed to end up with, are you? No. And the Bible is the same way. And so there's certain truths that precede other truths. There's, there's a, a, a method to God's communication to us. So I want you to understand that. Then we're going to read this 
amazing passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 8. And my prayer is that after today, reading a passage like this will, will be such a blessing to your soul. It will lift you up. It will, it will make you feel free. It will remind you of so many important and true things and not beat you down and not discourage you and not remind you of all the things that you're not or all the ways in which you're failing. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. The Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Even as it's written, he quotes Psalm 44, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present or things to come, no height, no depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And God, we pray this morning that You will give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that which you have to say to us, Lord. Thank you for every discouraged person here this morning. Thank you for every defeated person here this morning. Thank you for every shackle, every chain that will be broken today. Thank you. Thank you for the encouragement that you will place upon our lives. And thank you for how going forward from this point, so many might walk in the victory that you gave your precious son to give us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now you see here Paul is talking to the believers in Rome. And Paul is laying out these incredible realities that as children of God, even though we may face things like tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or even martyrdom in verse 36 that all of these things may come but we we still be victorious in those things you see the gospel is not that God is going to take all our problems away the gospel is God is that God's going to give us peace in the midst of whatever the world tries to throw at us and so when we're his children and we're defeated and we're discouraged, we're clearly living in a way that God has not created us to live. Listen, the Bible says here that we're, we're super conquerors. We're more than conquerors in Him who loved us and that nothing can separate us from His love. Now what I want to do is give you three realities. This, this is a, a very simple sermon. I only give you one principle. We're going to start with three realities. I'm going to talk for a while, then I'm going to give you one simple principle that I want you to take away 
from this time that we spend together. Okay? Three realities before we begin. Here they are. Number one, there is no such thing as instant maturity. There is no such thing as instant maturity. At salvation, yes, you have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, but you don't have uh, command of all those things. You don't have full capacity of all those things. They're there, and you, you possess the capacity. You just can't utilize it yet, okay? And so I'm just going to lay these realities out to help settle our hearts. So maybe as uh, in the days or weeks to come, as you go back over these things, you'll be able to uh, just resonate with them. There's no such thing as instant maturity. Number two, being conformed to the image of God is a lifelong process. It is a lifelong process. Sanctification takes from the time you are born again until the time you pass from this life to the next. But at the same time, resolving personal and spiritual conflicts and finding freedom in Christ is yours at salvation. You see, what I want you to understand this morning is that these truths are simultaneously at play in every saved person in this room's life. That yet you're not instantly mature. That it's a lifelong process of being conformed into the image of Jesus. But at salvation, what you do have command of is the, the power and the authority to resolve. Look at what it says. Personal and spiritual conflicts. You know the Bible says? Paul says to the church at Corinth that many people will sit in churches and, and sit under the word and can't receive it because they have unresolved conflict in their life. You know the Bible says that? Listen, at salvation you have, you can resolve the personal and spiritual conflicts and find freedom in Christ. Freedom. That's not something you need to be waiting around for. That's something you have the capacity to do now. The third reality. We as God's children are not trying to become children of God. We are children of God who are becoming like Christ. You see, I know what Satan is going to try to use to derail you and discourage you and defeat you in your life. He's going to try to tell you that, well, yes, you're immature. And, uh, and other people just instantly get it, but you don't get it. That's what he's going to do. Or he's going to try to use this lie with you that's going to make you uh, feel as though, um, you know, this, that sanctification is going to get all uh, disproportionate, like you're going to look in some funky mirror and you're going to see things all out of whack with regards to your sanctification. And you're, you're going to not believe that you have what it takes. You're going to keep clamoring around for what you need to resolve your personal conflicts when in fact at the moment of salvation you have everything you need to resolve those things. Those things need to be resolved. Listen, you, you get saved, it's time to start forgiving. You get saved, it's time to start mending fences. When you're saved, you've got to resolve these things. You've got to resolve the... You, you, things have changed positionally for you that will change your current uh, understanding and experience of life. Don't get lured into the trap of trying to become a child of God after you already are one. 
You are a child of God. You need to exist as a child of God. And what you're doing is you're trying to be conformed into the image of Christ. And those are two very different things. Okay, those are three realities. Now let's move forward. The anchor that Satan is going to use to drown us in discouragement and defeat is mistaken identity. You see, as this truth famine happens in our life, it's not necessarily that we need more Bible study, although all of us could use more Bible study, but we need, we need some things to happen in our life in the right order. We need to get freedom up from some things. There's, I mean, if you're defeated and you're discouraged and you're sitting down and, and reading the Scripture and you've got all sorts of unresolved issues in your life or all sorts of repetitive secret sins or whatever the case may be, you're just banging your head against the wall. Around and around you go. And there's no, you don't have to do that. Satan is going to use this anchor to drown you. He's going to tangle up your identity. That's what he's going to do. He wants you, every time you think about who you are, it's like looking into a house of mirrors. He wants you to see some distorted representation of who you actually are in Christ. That's his agenda for you and me as God's children. So if I ask you this morning a simple question like, who are you? I just walk up and say, who are you? What, what are you going to tell me? You're probably going to say things like, uh, you're going to tell me your name. That's not who you are, that's your name. Uh, if I keep pressing, you're going to tell me what you do, which is not who you are, it's what you do. Your job is not who you are. You're going to just continually give me this sequence of uh, descriptors about you, but they're not answering the question of who you are. Who are you? Who actually are you? What makes you who you are? Do you know that our first tendency in answering that question is always to answer with things that can be seen and noticed externally? It always is. It's just part of our culture. It's the way we think. It's the way we operate. Yet the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. You see, when, when we're regarding who you are, when I'm asking the question of who you are, who you are is not something that can be seen with my physical eyes. Who you are is something that's inside of you. It's not something that's based on the flesh on the outside of you. So the question may be this. Is who you are determined by what you do or is what you do determined by who you are? Now this is a very important distinction because when Satan gets our identity tangled around, here's what happens. Your identity is distorted. You are, don't realize who you truly are in Christ. You're not grasping the foundational realities of what the Bible says occurred in your life at salvation. And so that is going to profoundly impact your behavior. Your behavior is then going to be what condemns you. Because your behavior that's based on a wrong understanding of who you are is going to be wrong behavior. 
And that wrong behavior is going to have bad consequences. And the bad consequences are going to build up on top of you and eventually condemn you and defeat you. It's really not rocket science. It's really not. But what happens is, is that we get so beat down and so discouraged and so ensnared by uh, this confusion in our life that what we do is we start trying to resolve it by addressing the behavior. That's not the answer. Listen. Your hope for growth. If, if you walked in here this morning, literally at your lowest point, at your lowest point, just you, you could not possibly feel like more of a failure in Christ. Let's suppose that's you. I would say to you this morning, that you have great hope for growth. Great hope for growth. Great hope for meaning and fulfillment in your life. But it's based on, first and foremost, understanding who you are. If you're fixated, which we so often are, on the behavior that is condemning us, listen, Satan's got you right where he wants you. You're, you're just a, a rat running around in a wheel of behavior modification. You try, you fail. You try, you fail. You try, you fail. Is that resonating with anybody? You try, you fail. You try, you fail. And around and around you go. And the better people seem to do around you, whether that's reality or not, the worse you feel. And remember, you're in a house of mirrors. So you don't see yourself correctly and everyone else you look at you see distorted. And the tendency is to distort everyone else better than they are and to distort yourself worse than you are. And either way, regardless of how you do it, a distorted image is a distorted image. It's not the truth. I cannot overemphasize the importance of establishing our Christian lives on what we believe instead of how we behave. I could not make that point too many times because I see it over and over and over paying dividends of pain in people's lives whom I love. I want you to think about this this morning. You can't establish your life on how you behave, it's got to be on what you believe. It's got to be. But you see, our behavior is what's tangible. Our behavior is what the people around us are constantly criticizing. You see, our behavior is what, you know, if you talk, if you, if you talk to your spouse or you talk to your friends or you talk to someone around you, what are they, and you say, I'm just really struggling, I'm just having all these problems then the tendency of all those people in your life is to say, well, you're doing this and doing this and doing this. Stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this. But what really, what you need to do is, is, is sit down and talk with somebody who has a deep understanding of Scripture and let them listen to what you're saying. And as you're telling them all of these things that you're doing, underneath that, what they're thinking about is, what is the belief that is errant that is leading to this manifestation in behavior. Because if we're just dealing with behavior, then basically all I am is a school teacher reprimanding you for being bad in class. 
Or a principal like Miss Cindy who just got a big uh, award this week. Did y'all hear that? Our, one of our very own got a Distinguished Principal Award. Praise the Lord for her. So congratulations, Cindy. I think only four principals on the coast got that. Look at, uh, you, so you don't think that this belief issue is paramount in, in behavior and, and life and, and what you experience and how things go? Think about this passage of Scripture. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever is pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy... Meditate on these things. Now, why is Paul saying that? Just because, you know what, it would just, it, it just, it would just, be, it would just make you nicer. You know, it's a good thing to say. It sounds like a spiritual thing. Or does Paul understand that what's going on in here is going to determine what goes on out here? And so if your mind is fixated on the wrong things, if your mind, what Paul's saying is, Fill your mind with what is true. Not with what you think or what you see. But fill your mind with what is true. And it will radically change your life and the way you experience it. You know, I've uh, told this story before. It's been a number of years. I'm not sure how many of you in this setting have heard me tell this story before. But uh, there was a time... When I was in college and I had a friend, his name was Morgan. And Morgan was always getting me into some crazy situation. And one day, it was, uh, it was Friday, class had let out. And uh, he came to me and he said, hey, Tony, um, what are you doing this weekend? I'm like, nothing. And he said, uh, you want to come with me? And I go, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm house-sitting. I'm like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> Two guys sitting in a house, negative. He said, now, I'm house-sitting in this big mansion on the beach in Biloxi. I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> Let's go. So we hop in this little car. That's what I remember. Morgan was my size, but he drove a little car. It's just hilarious me thinking about this. So here's me and Morgan in this little car. You know, you know I feel like our head's sticking up 20 feet out of the top. So we drive, we're, at the time I was living in Mobile, so we drive over to Biloxi, and we, it's late, it's probably like 10 o'clock by the time we get there, so to get to this house, it's right on the beach, but you have to, you know, it's, it's a big fancy house, so you don't just pull up in the front, you have to go around the back. So we go around, we have to turn, go down this road, and then we come to this gate, and there's these two, these two lanterns on the top of the post, you know, with the flickering little you know, flame in them, and it's real dark, and so we pull in there, and we start going down this driveway, and it's weaving to the left, and it's weaving to the right, and we're, you know, and I'm thinking, man, this is like something out of a bad Scooby-Doo <laughs> cartoon, you know, and it's just dark and spooky, you know, and it's just all these little flickering lamps, and, and every, all the lights are out, and we, we pull up to the house, and I can tell that the house is not made of brick, but it's made of stones, like a castle. And I'm like, man, this is creepy. So we get out and we go up to the back door, you know, and it's got, you know, this giant, huge, wood, massive door. And he's fumbling around and he goes in, you know, and the door opens up and 
we walk into the kitchen and every, it's just huge. Like the ceilings are 15 feet high and everything's just giant and grand, you know, and it's kind of creepy. And so I'm walking around. Well, you know, it's, it's late. It's after 10. So, so we go in there. And uh, so I kind of explored around the house a little bit. And all the bedrooms were upstairs. So I go upstairs and I'm going down the hall and I'm looking in the rooms. And every room you look in has this giant, you know, antebellum bed, you know, that's this high off the ground. and got big posts or covers on the top of it. I mean, every room. I mean, this thing is crazy. And so I'm trying to pick which, you know, one of these haunted rooms I'm going to sleep in. And I'm looking around and trying, you know, so I find this one that has this gigantic bed. And I'm like, this is me. So this is where I make my home. So I go up there and, you know, when it's time to go to sleep, I, I go up there and hop in this giant bed. I pull those covers up over me a little bit, you know, and I'm laying there and there's a window. And the moonlight's coming in, and the wind's blowing, and the trees moving, and the shadows are going on the roof. And I'm in this haunted mansion, and I, it's making these creaking sounds. And I mean, I'm getting a little freaked out, you know, thinking, I don't know about this situation. So that was my last thought before I finally nodded off to sleep. Well, some point during the night, I'm awakened by a sound. And when my eyes open, you know that feeling of where am I and how did I get here? And then I remembered, oh yeah, I'm in the creepy place. What was that noise? So I slide over to the side of the bed. I put my feet on the, that cold wooden floor. And I walk, reek, reek. You know, and I'm walking and I'm thinking, you know, Morgan... Is that you? Are you up? And I turn and look at the door. And there is a man standing in the doorway looking at me. Now we're in the dark. It's the middle of the night. I'm in a haunted house. And there's a man. And I'm standing there. And he's looking straight at me. I mean, we're just face to face, shoulder to shoulder. And I go, hey! He doesn't do anything. I'm like, what are you doing? He doesn't do anything. So instantly, I mean, I'm, I'm panicking, y'all. I'm serious. I have to make a decision. And I'm a pretty quick thinker on my feet. And so I realize that I have two choices. There's a window behind me. It's closed, probably locked. I don't care, but I could dive through it. But I'm on the second floor. I don't know if there's air conditioning under there or yucca plants or I don't know what's under that thing. Or me and this guy are have to going to go toe-to-toe, one or the other. So just in an instant, I rushed him. I'm talking about rushed him. I put my head down. And I went as hard and as fast as I could because I'm thinking, somebody's going to die and it ain't going to be me. (laughs) Well, when I woke up the next morning, 
I had the biggest headache. And I looked up and realized I was leaning up against the door with a giant mirror on the back of it. And I had just tackled a mirror. Which would explain why the guy was so big and would explain why the guy didn't say anything back. Now what it didn't explain was how, was how I told Morgan why I went to bed fine and woke up with a giant knot on my forehead. Now, I tell you that to tell you this. Don't underestimate the power of your mind to convince you of something. You see, there's power in believing something. And I believed that that was a real person. And I believed that my life was in jeopardy. And I'm telling you that I went with everything I had. I mean, I intended to kill him. I literally thought about jumping through the window. Thank God I didn't choose that option. But now this is what Satan does. Satan is just like that mirror on the back of the door. He deceives us into fearing him, essentially, his deception more than God. He deceives us into believing that something that's distorted is real. And so what happens is we begin to respond and react and, and there's power in a lie. And so if, if my mind is capable of making me believe something such that I would ram my head into a door, then what are you capable of doing if Satan convinces you something is true about you that's not true. You see, all he has to do, he doesn't have to get you to disbelieve. He doesn't have to get you to quit coming to church. He doesn't have to get you to quit reading your Bible. He doesn't have to get, get you to quit doing anything. All he's got to do is get you to believe a lie about you. And once he gets you to believe a lie about you, he's got you. Because what you believe is going to dictate how you behave. It's going, to, it's going to determine the things that you do. It has power. That lie has power to make you do things that a few years earlier you thought oh, you would never do that. It has power to make you abandon convictions that you once held so dearly and so deeply. It will make you do things that at a time in your life you remember counseling other people saying, have you lost your mind? Why would you do such a thing? And here you are in the same boat they're in. You find yourself in places you never thought you'd be. You know, the Bible says in John chapter 8 that, that Satan is the father of lies, isn't he? That's what he wants to do. He's the deceiver. But I want you to know something this morning. Satan is powerless against your position in Christ. He's powerless. He has no power against your position in Christ. What happened to you when you got saved, 
Satan is powerless against that. You understand? He's, he's, he's powerless. Now, he can deceive you into believing something, but he's powerless to make his deception of rea- a true. You understand that? Satan cannot change what is true. All he can do is trick you into believing what's not true. If he can deceive you into believing his lies, you're going to spend a lot of time in a house of mirrors. There's going to be a long trail of pain and hurt and destruction in your life. Because it starts in the mind. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to take every thought captive. It starts right here. you got to meditate on good and true things. you got to take every thought captive. It starts right here. Listen, when it comes to uh, spiritual warfare, understand something. You don't have to, you don't have to out-shout the enemy or out-muscle the en- enemy. All you need to do is out-truth the enemy. It's all about truth. You just need to out-truth him. You just need to put truth... Where lies are. The way you dispel a lie is with the truth. If you don't have the truth, even if you think something's untrue, even if you think something's a lie, you really don't know. How many times have you told somebody, well, this is, what's, this is what they say. This is what they told me. I don't really know if it's true or not. Well, that's of no use. Well, what good is that? You can never know if something's a lie. It is impossible to expose something as a lie. Don't you understand? Without the truth. So running around all day saying, Satan, that's a lie. Satan, that's a lie. Satan, that's a lie. Is of no use. What good is it to say something's a lie? You really don't know that. What you have to do is say, it's a lie because this is true. This is true. This is true. See, the issue is truth. Power in the believer's life. Victory, peace. Listen, Jesus came to set the captives free. Well, what's going to set you free is truth. What you need to understand is that you already possess the power in Christ. All you need to do now is pursue the truth. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. These verses will come up on the screen. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now clearly, Paul's not talking to people who are unredeemed. Clearly. He says, the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened. What? Here's the key. That you may know. That you may know what is the hope of His calling... What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His mighty power? You see that? That in Christ, He wants you to know what are the exceeding exceeding greatness of His power that is yours in Christ. That's why Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. You see, freedom comes in the truth. That's why... Jesus, when He prays in John 17, He says, Father, sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is true. Remember that, John 17, 17. I want you to notice something. We've, we've talked a lot about this pattern of discipleship in the, old, in, the, in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus over the last seven weeks. I want you to think back of some things we've talked about. 
Remember when we talked about Jesus, how he, when he would, first started sending his disciples out to, to minister? Remember what happened in Luke chapter 9, beginning of Luke 9? We, we talked about this one Sunday morning. The Bible says that he called the twelve disciples together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease. Do you notice that when you're reading the Bible and there is the... Remember I told you about the progression of truth. Whenever you're reading Scripture and you're reading in the Gospels and the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, there's all this talk of demons and demon possession and casting out demons and all these sorts of things, right? And authority. Remember all that? But if you keep reading and you read on in the New Testament, you get to the epistles, you get to the letters that Paul wrote, you don't hear all that. There's no talk about casting out demons or authority or all those sorts of things. Why? Well, because during the life of Jesus, Satan was not a defeated foe. Something changed. There's a difference between what was going on in Jesus' ministry and what was going on in the rest of the, the Scripture. That there, was a, there was a defeat that happened. Remember, it was called Calvary. It was on the cross. Remember that, that moment in time? Something changed there. There was a definitive moment where at the death of Jesus and the resurrection of, of Him, Satan became defeated. You see, the resurrection is not only that, that Jesus triumphed over, but He also disarmed. There was a triumph over Satan and sin, but He disarmed the powers and principalities at the resurrection. So the Bible says in Colossians 2, for example, having disarmed, verse 15, the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them all. So both of those are true. Satan now has no authority over those who are in Christ. You know that? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you live that? And when, you're, when you find yourself behaving in a way that's condemning you and you're discouraged and you're defeated... Are you understanding that Satan has no authority over you if you're in Christ? Amen. You're in Christ. That is a very important reality. So, there is no need for the Christian to defeat the devil. There's no need for that. Christ has already accomplished that. What we need is to believe it. To believe it. You see, there might be the reality that Satan is a defeated foe, but it is no use to you. It's true, but it's not useful to you unless you believe it. You have to believe it. You have to internalize it. It has to be in your head to impact the way you behave. Listen, you need to understand something. That you may sit in a room filled with people. You may hear what you consider to be the same thing that everyone else is hearing. But what's going on in a moment like this is that you have a, have, a, have a personal responsibility. You have a personal responsibility to repent and to respond to the things that, that God's saying, to believe in the truth that He is uh, laying out before you. This isn't, this isn't a corporate thing. This is a personal thing. I can't repent for you. I can't believe for you. You have to repent for you. You have to believe for you. You. You have to embed truth for you. You. 
You have to do that. No one can do that for you. Your spouse can't do that for you. Your parents can't do that for you. No one can do that for you. You have to do that. How many times have so many of us sat and listened to a message and, and thought about all the things that were being said but walked out the door and didn't take personal responsibility for them and they're of no consequence to your life today? Listen, I'm trying to lead you to a path of victory. God wants to lay a very simple path out before you this morning to walk in victory in Christ. That doesn't mean to walk without troubles. That doesn't mean to walk without trials. But what it means is there's victory, to have peace in the midst of whatever storm you're facing. But you have to take personal responsibility for that. All I can do this morning is point you there. But I can't go there for you. I can't take you there. I can only point you there. you got to have a firm grip on what is true before you're ever going to be able to experience practical Christianity, victory, what, what God intended for you to experience. See, what we, we need to understand that who we are is a result of who we believe God is in our life. It's just so true. It's so simple. It's so true. So a faithful Christian life is a result of living by faith according to what God has said is true. A fruitful Christian life is simply the result of living by faith according to what God said is true. You see, Satan can try to discourage you. He can try to defeat you. He can, he can aggravate my microphone. But he has no authority. He has no authority. You see, he just tries to annoy. He tries to, he tries to persuade. He tries to deceive. But he has no authority. The word is the word. So let me just finish this up. You see, for so many people today, here's the problem. Because I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, it's the same problem. I'm just trying to circle the wagons in every single way. For so many people today, the way they, they, they've gotten themselves into this, this constant cycle of defeat and discouragement is that you have wrongly understood really what the, the, the Christian life is all about. What you've done is you've tried earnestly You've tried earnestly to do better. You've tried earnestly to stop and to fix things and to right the ship. But it's not that you're not trying sincerely. It's that you're trying to do the wrong thing. You see, you base your spiritual growth and all of your ideas about your maturity on doing. That's not the gospel. Your growth and your maturity begins with being, not doing, being. You ever notice something? If you, if you go back this evening, tomorrow, next week, somebody's listening to this sermon online five years from now, I just want to challenge you to get your Bible out. And I want you to go through the New Testament epistles. I want you to go through the book of Romans. I want you to go through the book of Ephesians. I want you to go through Galatians. I want you to go through Colossians. Here's what you're going to find. Every one of those books, 
has a progression of truth. Every one of them. If you look at the book of Romans, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans are all about being. Then the second half of the book is about the practical things, doing. Same thing with Ephesians. Same thing with Colossians. Same thing with Galatians. Same thing. That you, but here's what we do. We start with doing. We jump to the practical things of the Christian life. We try to just do these things, and we think if we do these things, it's going to bring about the change, and it won't. It may, it may modify your behavior for a short amount of time, but it's not going to last. Listen, you have to be before you do. You understand? Christianity is not behavior modification. It is about being. You need to know who you are in Christ first and foremost. And that will break the shackles that Satan has ensnared you with discouragement and defeat and just this repetitive over and over winding and winding and winding of destruction. You can have all the zeal in the world to correct these things in your life. I'm telling you. I want to know I would love to know. I wish I had a piece of paper for every single one of you. That on that piece of paper was a list of all your favorite verses. I, I would love that. Because here's what I want to know. I'd be willing to bet that most of us in this room gravitate towards all the verses about doing we love the practical verse about doing. Even when there's a, a passage that has a, a being part and a doing part, we always quote the practical part. We love the practical part. We just want God to tell us what to do. Listen. You can't do until you be. you got to know who you are before you're going to do. None of those practical commands in Scripture were ever designed to be attempted by someone who doesn't know who they are. That's why the Bible spends the first half of every single book telling you who you are. So that when you get to the second half, you can do the things you need to do. But if you just jump over all those things and go to the practical things, you're doomed for failure. There's no quick fix. I know the tendency for so many people is to get up and walk out of here after this sermon is over and then to just start going, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? No. No. First, you got to be. You got to be. Here's the only principle of the sermon. Being must precede doing. Being must precede doing. Or all you're ever going to be is a hypocrite. Because you can't sustain the doing without being. You see, you're never going to do the things you want to do for Christ until you understand who you are in Christ. Don't you want to just 
for once just walk in the power that God made you to walk in? Don't you want to be more than a conqueror? Don't you want that to be true? Don't you want to, you, don't you want to stop reading things in the Bible and thinking, I wish those were true for me? All those things that are talking about every believer. Don't you want to, don't you want to have peace that passes all understanding? Don't you want to be... Don't you want to live a life that that's, would be marked by a word like being an overcomer? Listen. Let me show you the difference between pre-Calvary and post-Calvary. There's a progression of truth I want you to see. John chapter 16, verse 33 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I share it all the time to comfort people in pain. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. I mean, whatever he's fixing to say after this, man, I'm paying close attention. And look what he says. In the world you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Now, isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? He's telling you things are going to be bad, and yet it's still good news. He's saying, be of good cheer. This will give you peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. That's before the cross. Jesus is saying, you need to cheer up. You're in me, and I've overcome the world. That's John's gospel. What does the Bible say in 1 John? progression in 1 John chapter 5 verse 4 for whatever is born of God what does it do what does it do wait a minute hold on a second wait a minute Jesus said be of good cheer for I've overcome the world but when you get to 1 John chapter 5 whatever's born of God does what you mean you overcome the world you mean you child of God overcome the world you mean you in Christ, overcome the world. Is that what the Bible says? Is that what's true? Is that, is that what we're actually living in defeat and discouragement and the reality that the Bible says that whatever's born of God overcomes the world? This is the victory that overcomes the world. What is it? Our faith. He, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't you let Satan bind you up, lie to you, distort you, put you in a house of mirrors, twist everything around for you. Listen, who you are is not determined by what we can see. Who you are is determined by what your Savior says is true about you. You tell Satan to shut up. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a deceiver. He wants you to believe some distorted thing about you that's not true. The Bible says you, ladies and gentlemen, you, young person, you, are an overcomer. You overcome the world. The world doesn't have authority and power over you. You overcome it. Your trials and your struggles and your tribulations will be there, but they won't defeat you. They don't have the power to defeat you if you walk in the identity of who God created you to be in Him. There's a progression of truth. What was once true of you, now that you're saved, is no longer true of you. So may all the lies 
be replaced with truth. May the shackles be broken free. Listen, God has made you an overcomer. You, an overcomer. And right now, as you're thinking about all the things you're facing and all the struggles you have and all the... And listen, I'm, and listen I know what's happening. Some of you in this room are thinking about... You're thinking about him or you're thinking about her. Or you're thinking about them. Or you think, I'm not talking about him or her or them. I'm talking about you. The Bible says you are an overcomer. Regardless of what he does or she does or they do, regardless of that, you are an overcomer. And so if you're an overcomer, how can him or her or them steal your joy? They can't. You are an overcomer. So here's what I want us to do. I want everybody to stand up right where you are. Rod's going to come. The band's going to come. We're going to sing a song together. We're going to sing a song that's going to help you this morning. It's a song that if you don't know, you need to know. And as you get to know it, here's what's going to happen. When he starts playing... The altar's open. If you want to come and kneel at the altar, you come and kneel at the altar. If you need me or Pastor Brian or Pastor Matt, we'll be here. You come to the front, we'll be here. But I want you to, I want you to take this in. I want you to sing this truth back to God. I want you to take this in. Don't leave here this morning discouraged and defeated child of God. If you're not a child of God, then by all means, if there's ever a day, if there's ever a day, ever a message where you would know, I can't, I, why would I go another second, take another breath apart from God? If that's what's true. So Rod, you lead us. We're going to sing. The altar's open. You come. If you want to come, you come. We're here. same old road for miles and miles If you've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies If you've been trying to feel the same old holes inside There's a better life There's a better life You got pain
Savior, you 